My name is Franz Schubert. I am a tall man in a very tiny pocket, and I wrote this song while I was quiet. This is this is a song I wrote. I am this is my song, and I am Franz Schubert. Thank you. Listen up. It's a sonata. there we did it we're gonna pause there this is the time I'm I need I'm I'm I need another coffee and Danny can take it from here this is French we'll finish we'll finish this in the, in the when it's time thank you Franz that was Franz Schubert on the piano playing a song that he wrote in the bathtub this morning it's a real treat to have a musician of his caliber um, waddling into the studio here on Big Old Avenue B in Alphabet City, the greatest city in the world. Uh, we're going to continue today with uh, Benedict Spinoza. Benedict Spinoza. Uh, Benedict de Spinoza's Ethics. We're learning how how you should be in the world. You don't know. You come. You come to me. Daniel Erickson, this is The Unplace. I am the host of The Unplace, of, of nothing, the purest nothing you can find in this world where everything is just so present, so real. This is, this is a space for none of that. And so we're going to be reading, continuing our reading of two classic materialist texts, Benedict de Spinoza's Ethics, and Karl Marx's Das Kapital. Yesterday, the last time you heard my voice, the last time I didn't hear my voice, we uh, had just finished a pretty long demonstration of the 
proof that God acts from the laws of his nature alone and is compelled by no one, a meditation on what exactly it means for God to be infinite in all things, to be lacking no specific quality. This does not mean that God will choose what he would otherwise choose not to do, that he can will something he does not see as true, that the freest you can be is when you are not limited by uh, falsehood, by incorrectness. And so to choose to do, to purely, correctly choose to do something which is a falsehood is in Spinoza's uh, our eyes, uh, an, an, an incomprehensible thing. That's something that cannot happen in the world, except uh, through the interaction of an uh, of a failed being, or somebody that is less than perfect, somebody with defects. But we're going to continue. This is still of God. And now, big proposition 18. God is the imminent, not the transitive, cause of all things. Demonstration. Everything that is, is in God, and must be conceived through God by Proposition 15. And so, by Proposition 16, Correlate 1, God is the cause of all things, which are in him. That is the first thing to be proven. And then, outside God, there can be no substance, by Proposition 14. That is, by Definition 3, thing which is in itself outside God. That was the second. God, therefore, is the imminent, not the transitive cause of all things, QED. Proposition 19. God is eternal, or all God's attributes are eternal. Demonstration. For God, by definition 6, is substance, which, by Proposition 11, necessarily exists. That is, by Proposition 7, to whose nature it pertains to exist, or what is the same, from whose definition it follows that he exists, and therefore, by definition 8, he is eternal. Next, by God's attributes are be understood what, by definition 4, expresses an essence of the divine substance, that is, what pertains to substance. The attributes themselves, I say, must involve it itself. But eternity pertains to the nature of substance, as I have already demonstrated from Proposition 7. Therefore, each of the attributes must involve eternity, and so... They are all eternal, QED. Scullion. This proposition is also as clear as possible from the way I have demonstrated God's existence, Proposition 11. For from that demonstration, I say, it is established that God's existence, like his essence, is an eternal truth. And then I have also demonstrated God's eternity in another way. Uh, Descartes' Principles, uh, Part 1, Proposition 19. And there is no need to repeat it here. Proposition 20. God's existence and his essence are one and the same. Demonstration. God, by Proposition 19, and all of his attributes are eternal. That is, by Definition 8, each of his attributes expresses existence. Therefore, the same attributes of God, which, by Definition 4, explain God's eternal essence at the same time, explain his eternal existence. That is, that itself which constitutes God's essence at the same time constitutes his existence. So, his existence and his essence are one and the same QED. Correlate 1. From this it follows, first, that God's existence, like his essence, is an eternal truth. Correlate 2. 
it follows second that God or all of God's attributes are immutable. For if they changed as to their existence, they would also, by Proposition 20, change as to their essence. That is, as is known through itself, from being true become false, which is absurd. Proposition 21. All the things which follow from the absolute nature of any of God's attributes have always had to exist and be infinite, or are, through the same attribute, eternal and infinite. Demonstration. If you deny this, then conceive, if you can, that in some attribute of God there follows from its absolute nature something that is finite and has a determinate existence or duration. For example, God's idea in thought. Now, since thought is supposed to be an attribute of God, it is necessarily, by Proposition 11, infinite by its nature. But insofar as it has God's idea, thought is supposed to be finite. But, by definition 2, thought cannot be conceived to be finite unless it is determined through thought itself. But thought cannot be determined through thought itself, insofar as it constitutes God's idea. For to that extent, thought is supposed to be finite. Therefore, thought must be determined through thought insofar as it does not constitute God's idea, which thought nevertheless, by Proposition 11, must necessarily exist. Therefore, there is thought which does not constitute God's idea. And on that account, God's idea does not follow necessarily from the nature of this thought insofar as it is absolute thought. For thought is conceived both as constituting God's idea and as not constituting it. That God's idea does not follow from thought insofar as it is absolute thought is contrary to the hypothesis. So... If God's idea in thought, or anything else in any attribute of God, for it does not matter what example is taken, since the demonstration is universal, follows from the necessity of the absolute nature of the attribute itself, it must necessarily be infinite. This was the first thing to be proven. Next, what follows in this way from the necessity of the nature of any attribute cannot have a determinate existence or duration. For if you deny this, then suppose there is in some attribute of God a thing which follows from the necessity of the nature of that attribute, for example, God's idea in thought, and suppose that at some time this idea did not exist or will not exist. But since thought is supposed to be an attribute of God, it must exist necessarily and be immutable by Proposition 11 and Proposition 20 correlate to. So beyond the limits of the duration of God's idea, for it is supposed that at some time this idea did not exist or will not exist, thought will have to exist without God's idea. But this is contrary to the hypothesis, for it is supposed that God's idea follows necessarily from the given thought. Therefore, God's idea in thought, or anything else which follows necessarily from the absolute nature of some attribute of God, cannot have a determinate duration, but through the same attribute is eternal. This was the second thing to be proven. Note that the same is to be affirmed of anything which, in some attribute of God, follows necessarily from God's absolute nature. Proposition 22. Whatever follows from some attribute of God, insofar as it is modified by a modification which, through the same attribute, exists necessarily and is infinite, must also exist necessarily and be infinite. Demonstration. The demonstration of this proposition proceeds in the same way as the demonstration of the preceding one. Proposition 23. 
Every mode which exists necessarily and is infinite has necessarily had to follow either from the absolute nature of some attribute of God, or from some attribute modified by a modification which exists necessarily and is infinite. Demonstration. For a mode is in another, through which it must be conceived, by definition 5, that is, by proposition 15, it is in God alone and can be conceived through God alone. So if a mode is conceived to exist necessarily and be infinite, its necessary existence and infinity must necessarily be inferred or perceived through some attribute of God, insofar as that attribute is conceived to express infinity and necessity of existence, or what is the same, by definition 8, eternity. That is, by definition 6 and proposition 19, insofar it is as it is considered absolutely. Therefore, the mode, which exists necessarily and is infinite, has had to follow from the absolute nature of some attribute of God, either immediately, see Proposition 21, or by some mediating modification, which follows from its absolute nature, that is, by Proposition 22, which exists necessarily and is infinite, QED. Proposition 24. The essence of things produced by God does not involve existence. Demonstration. This is evident from definition one. For that, which, for that whose nature involves existence, considered in itself, is its own cause, and exists only from the necessity of its nature. Correlate. From this it follows that God is not only the cause of things beginning to exist, but also of their persevering in existing, or, to use a scholastic term, God is the cause of the being of things, for whether the things produced exist or not, so long as we attend to their essence, we shall find that it involves neither existence nor duration. So their essence can be the cause neither of their existence nor of their duration, but only God, to whose nature alone it pertains to exist, can be the cause, by Proposition 14, Correlate 1. Proposition 25. God is the efficient cause, not only of the existence of things, but also of their essence. Demonstration. If you deny this, then God is not the cause of the essence of things. And so, by axiom 4, the essence of things can be conceived without God. But, by Proposition 15, this is absurd. Therefore, God is also the cause of the essence of things, QED. Scallion. This proposition follows more clearly from Proposition 16. For from that it follows that from the given divine nature both the essence of things and their existence must necessarily be inferred, and in a word, God must be called the cause of all things in the same sense in which he is called the cause of himself. This will be established still more clearly from the following corollary. Corollary. Particular things are nothing but affections of God's attributes, or modes by which God's attributes are expressed in a certain and determinate way. The det this demonstration is evident from Proposition 15 and Definition 5. And now, this is just a little pause. This is Spinoza talking. This is Danny Erickson, the host. This voice, this nothing you're hearing right now. Uh, I know that I was saying correlate earlier uh, when I should have been saying corollary, but I don't speak Latin, and I don't think I should, and so, fuck you. Um, I mean, I, that was strong, but, like, I, this isn't the time. This isn't the time for you to be bringing up criticisms. I'm in the middle of the middle of a performance, and and this uh, a recitation. And so, um, 
We're just trying to get through it. You can leave, leave your comments, leave your negative comments or positive comments. I don't really care. Don't speak now. This is my turn, my time, and um, I don't like it. I don't like it when it, that's interrupted. But, I mean, if, of course, criticisms are welcome. You know, criticisms are important. That's the only way uh, history moves forward. The bad side. And so, um, feel free to leave comments below on SoundCloud. I don't care. On uh, iTunes. That's fine. That's fine. Put a review. He said correlate. Uh, and every, I'll judge you, and that's okay, and I won't take your, I won't take your advice. I'm going to say corollary now because um, Benedict asked me to. But I'm not doing it. For, I'm not doing it for you. This isn't for you. This isn't. This isn't for anybody, really. But I. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing. Doesn't really matter. Proposition twenty-six: A thing which has been determined to produce an effect has necessarily been determined in this way. But why? But like, why are we doing anything? Why? Why do we make a choice to do? absolutely anything at all. That's, that's why you read The Ethics by Spinoza, so you can know, so you can get closer to the truth. These are uh, Motivation Tools by Benedict de Spinoza, the most efficient man who ever lived. He, he taught Alexander the Great. He taught Aristotle. He wrote 60 books in his 30 years of life. He taught... He taught Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Mozart did this. Mozart also died very early. He taught Jesus Christ, died at the age of 32, but did so much so quickly. And this, uh, most of, most of the people that he, um, doesn't really matter. Uh, but uh, do you want to, do you want to live efficiently for a little period of time or live inefficiently for all of time is, is kind of what I, that's, that's the question. And that's why we're reading this book. So, uh, stop fucking interrupting me. Proposition 26. A thing which has been determined to produce an effect has necessarily been determined in this way by God, and one which has not been determined uh, by God cannot determine itself to produce an effect. Demonstration. That, th that through which things are said to be determined to produce an effect must be something positive, as is known through itself. And so, God, from the necessity of its nature, is the efficient cause both of its essence and of its existence, by Proposition 25 and Proposition 16. This was the first thing. And from it, the second thing, being, the second thing asserted also follows very clearly. For if a thing which has not been determined by God could determine itself, the first part of this proposition would be false, which is absurd, as we have shown. Proposition 27. A thing which has been determined by God to produce an effect cannot render itself undetermined. Demonstration. This proposition is evident from a from Axiom 3. Proposition 28. Every singular thing, or any thing which is finite and has a determinate existence, can neither exist nor be determined to produce an effect unless it is determined to exist and produce an effect by another cause, which is also finite and has a determinate existence. And again, this cause also can neither exist nor be determined to produce an effect unless it is determined to exist and produce an effect by another, which is also finite and has a determinate existence. And so on to infinity. Demonstration. Whatever has been determined to exist and produce an effect has, all, has been so determined by God. 
by Proposition 26 and Proposition 24 corollary. But what is finite and has a determinate existence could not have been produced by the absolute nature of an attribute of God. For whatever follows from the absolute nature of an attribute of God is eternal and infinite by Proposition 21. It had, therefore, to follow either from God or from an attribute of God, insofar as it is considered to be affected by some mode. For there is nothing except substance and its modes, by Axiom 1 and Definitions 3 and 5. And modes, by Proposition 25, Corollary, are nothing but affections of God's attributes. But it also could not follow from God, or from an attribute of God, insofar as it is affected by a modification which is eternal and infinite, by Proposition 22. It had, therefore, to follow from, or be determined to exist and produce an effect by God, or an attribute of God, insofar as it is modified by a modification which is finite and has a determinate existence. This was the first thing to be proven. And in turn, this cause, or this mode, by the same reasoning by which we have already demonstrated the first part of this proposition, had also to be determined by another, which is also finite and has a determinate existence. And again, this last, by the same reasoning, by another, and so always, by the same reasoning, to infinity, QED, scholium. Since certain, certain things had to be produced by God immediately, namely those which follow necessarily from his absolute nature, and others which, nevertheless, can neither be nor be conceived without God, had to be produced by the mediation of these first things, it follows, one, that God is absolutely the proximate cause of the things produced immediately by him, and not a proximate cause in his own kind, as they say. For God's effects can neither be nor be conceived without their cause, by Propositions 15 and, uh, by Proposition 15 and Proposition 24 Corollary. And two, that God cannot properly be called the remote cause of singular things, except, perhaps, so that we may distinguish them from those things that he has produced immediately, or rather, that follow from his absolute nature. For by a remote cause, we understand one which is not conjoined in any way with its effect. But all things that are, are in God, and so depend on God that they can neither be, and so depend on God that they can neither be nor be conceived without him. Proposition 29. In nature there is nothing contingent, but all things have been determined from the necessity of the divine nature to exist and produce an effect in a certain way. Demonstration. Whatever is, is in God, by Proposition 15. But God cannot be called a contingent thing. For by Proposition 11, he exists necessarily, not contingently. Next, the modes of the divine nature have also allowed, have also followed from it necessarily and not contingently by Proposition 16, either insofar as the divine nature is considered absolutely by Proposition 21, or insofar as it is considered to be determined to act in a certain way by Proposition 28. Further, God is the cause of these modes not only insofar as they simply exist by Proposition 24c, but also by Proposition 26 insofar as they are considered to be determined to produce an effect. For if they have not been determined by God, then by Proposition 26, it is impossible. It is not impossible. It is not contingent. Wait, fuck. This, you know, these sentences, they, they, they have to come in a certain order. It's like a... It's like if you get a word off, then the whole proof falls apart, and... 
that's why that's why philosophy isn't poetry if you know what I mean we're starting over God is the cause of these modes not only insofar as they simply exist by Proposition 24 corollary, but also by Proposition 26, insofar as they are considered to be determined to produce an effect. For if they have not been determined by God, then by Proposition 26, it is impossible, not contingent, that they should determine themselves. Conversely, by Proposition 27, if they have been determined by God, it is not contingent, but impossible, that they should render themselves undetermined. So all things have been determined from the necessity of the divine nature, not only to exist, but to exist in a certain way, and to produce effects in a certain way. There is nothing contingent. QED. This is a Saturday night, and some people outside are happy. And I don't think this should be allowed. I don't think... Uh, I have a cold. It's a little bit... It's been chilly out all day. And in, this, and in the, 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 the font from which I uh, stand and earn money from a mediocre corporation that's in the process of, uh, I don't know, like a 15-year dying spree. I, and now I'm reading Spinoza, and, and like Spinoza's fun. Like, that's, that's good. Like people, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, honestly, like, I'm happy, but not as happy as I would like to be. And if... I would be okay if people were as happy as I am, but no, no happier. That is the point at which I think it, um, just fuck, just fucking cool it. If you're, if you're out having a good time tonight, um, uh, I mean, you won't have heard this until probably a couple days. This is Saturday night, uh, September 30th. Any future Saturdays, just ask me how, how wild you can get. That's all. That's all. This is a reasonable thing. And I will tell you, and I, like, I won't care after that point, like, as long as you do it. Um, anyway. It's somebody's birthday, and so congratulations, you know. Yeah, have a, have a great time. I, yeah, thanks. In nature... Proposition 29. In nature, there is nothing... No, we already did that. Ooh, yeah, so nothing contingent. All things have been determined from the necessity of the divine nature to exist and produce an effect in a certain way within itself. We are all within the God body. Here's a scholium. Before I proceed further, I wish to explain here, or rather to advise the reader, the listener, that what we, what we must understand by natura naturans and natura Naturata. For from the preceding, I think it is already established by that by natura naturans we must understand what is in itself and is conceived through itself, or such attributes of substance as express an eternal and infinite essence. That is, by Proposition 14, Corollary 1, and Proposition 17, Corollary 2, God, insofar as he is considered as a free cause. So, God insofar as he is considered as a free god, is natura naturans. So attributes of substance as expressed in eternal and infinite essence. But, by natura naturata, I understand whatever follows from the necessity of God's nature. Or, 
from any of God's attributes. That is, all the modes of God's attributes, insofar as they are considered as things which are in God and can neither be nor be conceived without God. Proposition 30. An actual intellect, whether finite or infinite, must comprehend God's attributes and God's affections and nothing else. Demonstration. A true idea must agree with its object, by axiom six. That is, as is known through itself, what is contained objectively in the intellect must necessarily be in nature. But in nature, by Proposition 14, Corollary 1, there is only one substance, namely God, and there are no affections other than those which are in God, by Proposition 15, and which can neither be nor be conceived without God, by Proposition 15. Therefore, an actual intellect, whether finite or infinite, must comprehend God's attributes and God's affections and nothing else. QED. Proposition 31. The actual intellect, whether finite or infinite, like will, desire, love, and the like, must be referred to natura naturata, not to natura naturans. Demonstration. By intellect, as is known through itself, we understand not absolute thought, but only a certain mode of thinking, which mode differs from the others, such as desire, love, and the like. And so, by definition 5, must be conceived through absolute thought, that is, by proposition 15 and demonstration 6, it must be so conceived through an attribute of God, which expresses the eternal and infinite essence of thought, that it can neither be nor be conceived without that attribute. And so, by proposition 29, scholium, like the other modes of thinking, it must be referred to natura naturata, not to natura naturans, QED, scholium. The reason I, why I speak here of actual intellect is not because I concede that there is any potential intellect, but because, wishing to avoid all confusion, I wanted to speak only of what we perceive as clearly as possible, that is, of the intellection itself. We perceive nothing more clearly than that, for we can understand nothing that does not lead to the more perfect knowledge of the intellection. Proposition 32. The will cannot be called a free cause, but only a necessary one. Demonstration. The will, like the intellect, is only a certain mode of thinking, and so, by Proposition 28, each volition can neither exist nor be determined to produce an effect unless it is determined by another cause, and this cause again by another, and so on, to infinity. Even if the will be supposed to be infinite, it must still be determined to exist and produce an effect by God, not insofar as he is an absolutely infinite substance, but insofar as he is an attribute that expresses the infinite and eternal essence of thought, by Proposition 23. So in whatever way it is conceived, whether as finite or as infinite, it requires a cause by which it is determined to exist and produce an effect. And so, by definition 7, it cannot be called a free cause, but only a necessary or compelled one, QED. Corollary 1. From this it follows, first, that God does not produce any effect by freedom of the will. Corollary 2. It follows, second, that will and intellect are related to God's nature as motion and rest are, and as are absolutely all natural things, which, by Proposition 29, must be determined by God to exist and produce an effect in a certain way. For the will, like all other things, requires a cause 
by which it is determined to exist and produce an effect in a certain way. And although from a given will or intellect infinitely many things may follow, God still cannot be said on that account to act from freedom of the will, any more than he can be said to act from freedom of motion and rest on account of those things that follow from motion and rest, for infinitely many things also follow from motion and rest. So will does not pertain to God's nature any more than do the other natural things, but is related to him in the same way as motion and rest, and all the other things which, as we have shown, follow from the necessity of the divine nature and are determined by it to exist and produce an effect in a certain way. Proposition 33. Things could have been produced by God in no other way and in no other order than they have been produced. Demonstration. For all things have necessarily followed from God's given nature, by Proposition 16, and have been determined from the necessity of God's nature to exist and produce an effect in a certain way, by Proposition 29. Therefore, if things could have been of another nature, or could have been determined to produce an effect in another way, so that the order of nature was different, then God's nature could also have been other than it is now, and therefore, by Proposition 11, that other nature would also have had to exist, and consequently, there could have been two or more gods, which is absurd, by Proposition 14, Corollary 1. So things could have been produced in no other way, and in no other order, and so on, QED. Scholium 1, since by these propositions I have shown more clearly than the noon light that there is absolutely nothing in things on account of which they can be called contingent, I wish now to explain briefly what we must understand by contingent. But first, what we must understand by necessary and impossible. A thing is called necessary either by reason of its essence or by reason of its cause. For a thing's existence follows necessarily either from its essence and definition or from a given efficient cause. And a thing is also called impossible from these same causes, namely, either because its essence or definition involves a contradiction, or because there is no external cause which has been determined to produce such a thing. But a thing is called contingent only because of a defect of our knowledge. For if we do not know that the thing's essence involves a contradiction, or if we do know very well that its essence does not involve a contradiction, and nevertheless can affirm nothing certainly about its existence, because the order of causes is hidden from us, it can never seem to us either necessary or impossible. So we call it contingent, or possible. Scholium 2. From the preceding, it clearly follows that things have been produced by God with the highest perfection, since they have followed necessarily from a given most perfect nature. Nor does this convict God of any imperfection, for his perfection compels us to affirm this. Indeed, from the opposite, it would clearly follow, as I have just shown, that God is not supremely perfect, because if things had been produced by God in another way, we would have to attribute to God another nature, different from that which we have been compelled to attribute to him from the consideration of the most perfect being. However, I have no doubt that many will reject this opinion as absurd without even being willing to examine it, for no other reason than because they have been accustomed to attribute another freedom to God, far different from that we have taught, definition 7, namely, an absolute will. But I also have no doubt that if they are willing to reflect on the matter and consider properly the chain of our demonstrations, in the end they will utterly reject the freedom they now attribute to the God, not only as futile, but as a great obstacle to science. 
Nor is it necessary for me to repeat here what I said in Proposition 17, Scalium. Nevertheless, to please them, I shall show that even if it is conceded that will pertains to God's essence, it still follows from his perfection that things could have been created by God in no other way or order. It will be easy to show this if we consider, first, what they themselves concede, namely, that it depends on God's decree and will alone that each thing is what it is. For otherwise, God would not be the cause of all things. Next, that all God's decrees have been established by God himself from eternity. For otherwise, he would be convicted of imperfection and inconstancy. But since in eternity there is neither when, nor before, nor after, it follows from God's perfection alone that he can never decree anything different and never could have, or that God was not before his decrees and cannot be without them. But they will say that even if it were supposed that God had made another nature of things, or that from eternity he had decreed something else concerning nature and its order, no imperfection in God would follow from that. Still, if they say this, they will concede at the same time that God can change his decrees. For if God had decreed concerning nature and its order, something other than what he did decree, that is, had willed and conceived something else concerning nature, he would necessarily have had an intellect other than he now has, and a will other than he now has, and if it is permitted to attribute to God another intellect and another will without any change of his essence and of his perfection, why can he not now change his decrees concerning created things and nevertheless remain equally perfect? For his intellect and will concerning created things in their order are the same in respect to his essence and his perfection, however his will and intellect may be conceived. Further, all the philosophers I have seen concede that in God there is no potential intellect, but only an actual one. But since his intellect and his will are not distinguished from his essence, as they all also concede, it follows that if God had another actual intellect and another will, his essence would also necessarily be other. And therefore, as I inferred at the beginning, if things had been produced by God otherwise than they now are, God's intellect and his will, that is, as is conceded, his essence, would have to be different from what it now is. And this is absurd. Therefore, since things could have been produced by God in no other way and no other order, and since it follows from God's supreme perfection that this is true, no truly sound reason can persuade us to believe that God did not will to create all the things which are in his intellect with that same perfection with which he understands them. But they will say that there is no perfection or imperfection in things, what is in them on account of which they are perfect or imperfect, or imperfect and are called good or bad, depends only on God's will. And so, if God had willed, he could have brought it about that what is now perfection would have been the greatest imperfection, and conversely, that what is now an imperfection in things would have been the most perfect. How would this be different from saying openly, that God, who necessarily understands what he wills, can bring it about by his will that he understands things in another way than he does understand them. As I have just shown, this is a great absurdity. So, I can turn the argument against them in the following way. All things depend on God's power. So in order for things to be able to be different, God's will would necessarily also have to be different. But God's will cannot be different as we have just shown most evidently from God's perfection. So things also cannot be different. I confess that this opinion, 
which subjects all things to a certain indifferent will of God and makes all things depend on his good pleasure is nearer the truth than that of those who maintain that God does all things for the sake of the good. For they seem to place something outside God which does not depend on God, to which God attends as a model in what he does and at which he aims as at a certain goal. This is simply to subject God to fate. Nothing more absurd can be maintained about God whom we have shown to be the first and only free cause, both of the essence of all things and of their existence. So I shall waste no time in refuting this absurdity. Proposition 34. God's power is his essence itself. Demonstration. For from the necessity alone of God's essence, it follows that God is the cause of himself, by Proposition 11, and by Proposition 16 and 16 corollary of all things. Therefore, God's power, by which he and all things are and act, is his essence itself. QED. Proposition 35. Whatever we conceive to be in God's power necessarily exists. Demonstration for whatever is in God's power must, by Proposition 34, be so comprehended by his essence that it necessarily follows from it and therefore necessarily exists. QED. Proposition 36, nothing exists from whose nature some effect does not follow. Demonstration, whatever exists expresses the nature or essence of God in a certain and determinate way by Proposition 25 corollary. That is, by Proposition 34, whatever exists expresses in a certain and determinate way the power of God, which is the cause of all things. So, by Proposition 16... From everything which exists, some effect must follow. QED. Thank you, Danny. This is a very important special day for me. I have been alive for 60,000 days now, and that's a pretty big deal. So congratulations to me is all I gotta, is all I gotta say. Thank you. Here's the ending of my sonata.
that's why they call me Franz Schubert. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you. This happy. I'll, I'll see you next week. Thank you, Danny. Goodbye. You're welcome. You're welcome, Franz. I'm very proud of you. You've stayed alive for so long, and you're so, so full, so full of of life. You know, you're just you're just a big a big guy, and that's. That's impressive to me. As a as a medium-sized man, you're a big man, and that's pretty cool. And thank you for your music. You, uh, it's great that you wrote that song, and that it's you. Thank you very much. Now we're going to read the first section, or two, of the first chapter, or one, of Marx's Das Kapital. If you don't speak German, that, stand, that means, in German, the capital. Of what? We don't know. That's what's great about titles. You haven't started it, you don't know the ending. And that's, that's exciting. That's why you keep reading, to know what does this word mean on the cover. We'll explain it very soon. So, chapter one, commodities. Section one, the two factors of a commodity, use value and value, the substance of value and the magnitude of value. The wealth of those societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails presents itself as an immense accumulation of commodities, its unit being a single commodity. Our investigation must therefore begin with the analysis of a commodity. A commodity is, in the first place, an object outside us, a thing that by its properties satisfies human wants of some sort or another. The nature of such wants, whether, for instance, they spring from the stomach or from fancy, makes no difference. Neither are we here concerned to know how the object satisfies these wants, whether directly as means of subsistence or indirectly as means of production. Every useful thing, as iron, paper, etc., may be looked at from the two points of view of quality and quantity. It is an assemblage of many properties, and may therefore be of use in various ways. To discover the various uses of things is the work of history. So also is the establishment of socially recognized standards of measure for the quantities of these useful objects. The diversity of these measures has its origin partly in the diverse nature of the objects to be measured, partly in convention. The utility of a thing makes it a use value. But this utility is not a thing of air. Being limited by the physical properties of the commodity, it has no existence apart from that commodity. A commodity, such as iron, corn, or a diamond, is therefore, is, is therefore, so far as it is a material thing, a use value, something useful. This property of a commodity is independent of the amount of labor required to appropriate its useful qualities. When treating of use value, we always assume to be dealing with definite quantities, such as dozens of watches, yards of linen, or tons of iron. The use values of commodities furnish the material for a special study, that of the commercial knowledge of commodities. Use values become a reality only by use or consumption. They also constitute the substance of all wealth, whatever may be the social form of that wealth. In the form of society we are about to consider, they are, in addition, the material depositories of exchange value. Exchange value, at first sight, presents itself as a quantitative relation, as the proportion in which values in use of one sort are exchanged for those of another sort, a relation constantly changing with time and place. 
Hence, exchange value appears to be something accidental, and purely relative, and consequently an, ex an intrinsic value, i.e. an exchange value that is inseparably connected with, inherent in commodities, seems a contradiction in terms. Let us consider the matter a little more closely. A given commodity, e.g. a quarter of wheat, is exchanged for X blacking, Y silk, or Z gold, etc. In short, for other commodities in the most different proportions. Instead of one exchange value, the wheat has, therefore, a great many. But since X blacking, Y silk, or Z gold, etc., each represents the exchange value of one quarter of wheat, X blacking, Y silk, Z gold, etc., must as exchange values be replaceable by each other, or equal to each other. Therefore, first, the valid exchange values of a given commodity express something equal. Secondly, exchange value generally is only the mode of expression, the phenomenal form of something contained in it, yet distinguishable from it. Let us take two commodities, e.g. corn and iron. The proportions in which they are exchangeable, whatever those properties may be, can always be represented by an equation in which a given quantity of corn is equated to some quantity of iron, e.g. Uh, one quarter corn equals x, centa, x CWT iron. What does this equation tell us? It tells us that in two different things, in one quarter of corn and x CWT of iron, there exists in equal quantities something common to both. The two things must therefore be equal to a third, which in itself is neither the one nor the other. Each of them, so far as it is exchange value, must therefore be reducible to this third. A simple geometrical illustration will make this clear. In order to calculate and compare the areas of rectilinear figures, we decompose them into triangles. But the area of the triangle itself is expressed by something totally different from its visible figure, namely by half the product of the base multiplied by the altitude. In the same way, the exchange values of commodities must be capable of being expressed in terms of something common to them all, of which thing they represent a greater or less quantity. This common something cannot be either a geometrical, a chemical, or any other natural property of commodities. Such properties claim our attention only insofar as they affect the utility of those commodities, make them use values. But the exchange of commodities is evidently an act characterized by a total abstraction from use value. Then one use value is just as good as another, provided only it be present in sufficient quantity. Or, as old Barbon says, one sort, of wares is, uh, one sort of wares are as good as another, if the values be equal. There is no difference or distinction in things of equal value. An hundred pounds worth of lead or iron is of as great value as one hundred pounds worth of silver or gold. As use values, commodities are, above all, of different qualities. But as exchange values, they are merely different quantities, and consequently do not contain an atom of use value. If then we leave out of consideration the use value of commodities, they have only one common property left, that of being products of labor. But even the product of labor itself has undergone a change in our hands. If we make abstraction from its use value, we make abstraction at the same time from the material elements and shapes that make the product a use value. We see in it no longer a table, a house, yarn, or any other useful thing. 
Its existence as a material thing is put out of sight. Neither can it any longer be regarded as the product of the labor of the joiner, the mason, the spinner, or of any other definite kind of productive labor. Along with the useful qualities of the products themselves, we put out of sight both the useful character of the various kinds of labor embodied in them and the concrete forms of that labor. There is nothing left but what is common to them all. All are reduced to one and the same sort of labor, human labor in the abstract. Let us now consider the residue of each of these products. It consists of the same unsubstantial reality in each, a mere congelation of homogeneous human labor, of labor power expended without regard to the mode of its expenditure. All that these things now tell us, that human labor power has been expended in their production, that human labor is embodied in them, when looked at as, crit as crystals of this social substance, common to them all, they are values. We have seen that when commodities are exchanged, their exchange value manifests itself as something totally independent of their use value. But if we abstract from their use value, there remains their value as defined above. Therefore, the common substance that manifests itself in the exchange value of commodities, whenever they are exchanged, is their value. The progress in our investigation will show that exchange value is the only form in which the value of commodities can manifest itself or be expressed. For the present, however, we have to consider the nature of value independently of this, its form. A use value, or useful article, therefore, has value only because human labor in the abstract has been embodied or materialized in it. How, then, is the magnitude of this value to be measured? plainly by the quantity of the value-creating substance, the labor contained in the article. The quantity of labor, however, is measured by its duration, and labor time, in its turn, finds its standard in weeks, days, and hours. Now, some people might think that if the value of a commodity is determined by the quantity of labor spent on it, the more idle and unskillful the labor, the more valuable would his commodity be, because more time would be required in its production. The labor, however, that forms the substance of value, is homogeneous human labor, expenditure of one uniform labor power. The substance of value is homogeneous human labor, expenditure of uh, the total labor power of society, which is embodied in the sum total of the values of all commodities produced by that society, counts here as one homogeneous mass of human labor power, composed though it be of innumerable individual units. Each of these units is the same as any other, so far as it has the character of the average labor power of society, and takes effect as such. That is, so far as it requires for producing a commodity, no more time than is needed on an average, no more than is socially necessary. The labor time socially necessary is that required to produce an article under the normal conditions of production and with the average degree of skill and intensity prevalent at the time. The introduction of power looms into England probably reduced by one half the labor required to weave a given quantity of yarn into cloth. The hand loom weavers, as a matter of fact, continued to require the same time as before, but for all that, the product of one hour of their labor represented after the change only half an hour's social labor, and consequently fell to one half its formal, former value. We see, then, that that which determines the magnitude of the value of any article is the amount of labor socially necessary, 
or the labor time socially necessary for its production. Each individual commodity in this connection is to be considered as an average sample of its class. Commodities, therefore, in which equal quantities of labor are embodied or which can be produced in the same time, have the same value. The value of one commodity is to the value of any other, as the labor time necessary for the production of the one is to that necessary for the production of, others, of, of the other. As values, all commodities are only definite masses of congealed labor time. The value of a commodity would therefore remain constant, if the labor time required for its production also remained constant. But the latter changes with every variation in the pr productiveness of labor. This productiveness is determined by various circumstances, amongst others by the average amount of skill of the workman, the state of science, and the degree of its practical application, the social organization of production, the extent and capabilities of its means of production, and by physical conditions. For example, the same amount of labor in favorable seasons is embodied in eight bushels of corn, and in unfavorable, only in four. The same labor extracts from rich mines more metal than from poor mines. Diamonds are a very rare occurrence on the Earth's surface, and hence their discovery costs, on an average, a great deal of labor time. Consequently, much labor is represented in a small compass. Jacob doubts whether gold has ever been paid for at its full value. This applies still more to diamonds. According to Eschwege, the total produce of the Brazilian diamond mines for the 80 years ending in 1823 had not realized the price of one and a half years average produce of the sugar and coffee plantations of the same country, although the diamonds cost much more labor and therefore represented more value. With richer mines, the same quantity of labor would embody itself in more diamonds and their value would fall. If we could succeed at a small expenditure of labor in converting carbon into diamonds, their value might fall below that of bricks. In general, the greater the productiveness of labor, the less is the labor time required for the production of an article, the less is the amount of labor crystallized in that article, and the less is its value, and vice versa. The less the productiveness of labor, the greater is the labor time required for the production of an article, and the greater is its value. The value of a commodity, therefore, varies directly as the quantity and inversely as the productiveness of the labor incorporated in it. A thing can be a use value without having value. This is the case whenever its utility demand is not due to labor, such as air, virgin soil, natural meadows, etc. A thing can be useful and the product of human labor without being a commodity. Whoever directly satisfies his wants with the produce of his own labor creates, indeed, use values, but not commodities. In order to produce the latter, he must not only produce use values, but use values for others, social use values, and not only for, the, for others, without more. The medieval peasant produced quit-rent corn for his feudal lord and tithe corn for his person. But neither the quit-rent corn nor the tithe corn became commodities by reason of the fact that they had been produced for others. To become, to become a commodity, a product must be transferred to another whom it will serve as a use value by means of an exchange. Lastly, nothing can have value without being an object of utility. If the thing is useless, so is the labor contained in it. The labor does not count as labor and therefore creates no value. This has been The Unplace. I'm Daniel Erickson. I've been, in various times, 
Karl Marx, Antonio Puccini, Big Mother Marble, and Benedict Espinoza. He went by Baruch to nobody except the historians. If you like this, please uh, comment on Facebook, on iTunes. Please give us a rating. Uh, and by us, I mean me and Franz. Uh, Franz is a very delicate soul, and uh, he needs a lot of positive feedback. So please tell him you liked his song. Um, he wrote it for you, and so um, well, I, I care about him. That's all. Uh, also, uh, we are on SoundCloud, and you can follow us there. Just click the follow button. It's easy to do, and it counts as a serving of vegetables. But it tastes better than vegetables, than most vegetables. I like some vegetables, and that's I like all vegetables that grow under the ground because they are less prepossessing, I think. I don't like vegetables that grow flowers. That's something. I don't like I don't like things that grow flowers. I, I I don't like flowers. I think that's the thing. It's the flowers that that get me, not the growing of the flowers. But if they're there, then I'm not gonna put it in my mouth. That's all I'm saying. I love you all, deeply, truly, and uh, forcibly. Uh, that's a lie. I don't know what. Uh, you're great. If you don't want love, you don't need to take it. Um, thank you. Thank you for putting me in your ears. I wish you all the best, and uh, stay safe. Stay safe. It's uh, it's dreary out there. See you next week on The Unplace. I'm Daniel Erickson, and I never will be again. Happy, happy day.